AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is keyboardist extraordinaire David Page. You know him from Toto and his work on albums with Michael Jackson, Boz Skaggs, and so many more. He's just released his first solo album, Broken Toys. David, why a solo album? Why now? Uh, well, I kind of got bullied into this, Bob. Uh, my my cohorts and colleagues, Steve Lukather and uh, Joseph Williams, were making solo records pre-COVID, and uh, I got involved with their solo records, and uh, 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 they prompted me. They said, "Well, what, you need to put out solo record out." And I said, "Well, I don't I don't do solo records. I do my band records." And they said, "No, it's time for you to do that. You have some material lying around to get that material out there, and so people can hear it." So. Uh, I got in, uh, uh, I got Joseph Williams to co-produce with me, and uh, we just got in the studio and started uh, uh, pulling old pieces out. And uh, I d- decided uh, to, to start the album. This was about two years ago. Okay, do you have a lot of old pieces around, and why were they not previously used? Uh, they just didn't have a home. Sometimes you come up with just little sections of songs, and. Uh, Sometimes you work them into framing them into a, a song, or sometimes they're just uh, uh, forgotten about, you know? By the way, the, the, the album title's Forgotten Toys. You oh, know? sorry. That's okay. No, I mentioned that it was originally Broken Toys, but it is Forgotten Toys now. So they're old forgotten songs that needed dusting off and, uh, and to find a new home, you know? So how many did you have to go through to find the ones you want? Oh, probably maybe about 20 uh, pieces, little pieces and stuff like this. Because this is a, a song, uh, an album that was put together kind of like a puzzle 
where we said we we have these pieces of music, but we don't know what the puzzle looks like. So we had to frame it, get the form on it, and uh, 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 get lyrics written and get melodies written to it. So uh, it was a work in progress the whole time. Okay, so you started two weeks, two years ago, not two weeks ago. Yeah. And it is Forgotten Toys. Sorry for that fuck up. That's okay. And uh, so when you started with Joseph, what were the first steps? The first step was Joseph came in and heard a demo that I had done. And this was on the song First Time, uh, which is like the third cut on the uh, EP. And uh, he said, give me that. Let me take that and make a blueprint of that. And what he did was he took my original synth, little synth riff that I was playing uh, on on a keyboard, and he added his samples to that and made a little rhythm track of that, what he calls getting ready for musicians, uh, where he makes uh, these little uh, uh, almost demos, but they're really fat, good demos, before we start adding the human element, which are the musicians. So you gave us some stuff. How did you end up with the total complement of songs? I mean, there's seven songs on the album. How'd you get seven? Uh, I tr- there were some a couple extra songs, but I didn't feel I wanted to convolute the record and, and have s- s- uh, songs that people skipped over. I don't, didn't want any filler in there. And this is just what I had at the, at the given amount of time. Uh, uh, it's just what I came up with, and I didn't want to include uh, little pieces that uh, weren't together, you know. So uh, uh, these, were my, these were my favorite ones. Okay. So where did you cut it? We cut it at uh, my studio here, which is called ATS. That stands for Across the Street. And at Joseph's Place uh, also as well. And then uh, we went to a few studios to get musicians. Uh, Steve Jordan, I sent him a track. Steve Jordan, who's now the current uh, drummer with the Rolling Stones, uh, he did his in New York on Queen Charade. And uh, I went to uh, Don Felder's house for this Queen Charade as well to have him put slide guitar on it. And he was great. He's a fantastic slide player. I can't say enough about uh, what a great guy Don Felder is and uh, how much he added to... uh, uh, what a magical experience that was watching him play slide guitar. How do you know Felder, who used to be in the Eagles? Um, he, I, a, a common uh, colleague of ours, uh, um, asked me to uh, do overdubs. He was a producer of Don's album, and uh, he asked me to do some overdubs for Don's record. And so I've, the last three or two or three albums, I've worked on doing overdubs for Don. And then when I asked him to to uh uh play on uh, my album he didn't even flinch it was just a big yes it was, what time do you need me you know he was so great now in the old days you're a studio musician you're making you know uh the rate or double or triple when you call in your friends people are interested in how it works business is totally different everybody works for free how does it work a combination of both you know, I don't expect professionals to come in and work for free, but I have certain friends that won't that refuse to work for money and stuff that will just they're they're returning favors. It's kind of like the old barter system. You know, you play on my record and I play on your record. So t- sometimes it's exchanged that way. Sometimes I write the person a check that's right here right after they finish playing and it's uh it's done deal. Okay. 
And how extensive is your home studio? Uh, it's fairly extensive. I have an isolation booth. I have a control room. It was put together by the people that, uh, by a mastering house called the Mastering Lab, which is a, was a famous uh, mastering right. facility in LA. Well, those are the gentlemen that put in my sound system because I wanted a studio that sounded, uh, that you could listen to professionally at two recordings at home. And when you took it out of here, it wouldn't sound different. So uh, I have a very professional, small, it's really for a keyboard player kind of producer. But yet I, I have a right behind me, I have a nine foot grand piano that I've used on all the Toto records. And I've recorded vocals and brass players in here before. And uh, uh, that's about it. And what kind of equipment do you have? What kind of equipment? I've got old and new, just like me, Bob, old and new. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, I've got, um, I've got a Hammond organ sitting right in front of me here. I've got a, a nine foot, uh, Baldwin SD 10 in back of me, but I've got also, uh, Nord instruments. I have Korg instruments and I'm mainly using a, a computer now with the logic program and pro tools to do the recording. I still have two analog machines sitting here just to remind my digital, uh, computers, uh, uh, that there once was a past there, you know, they're still sitting here, uh, watching, watching behind them. I've got a 24 track Studer and a two tracks, uh, Studer, uh, sitting in my studio. How long have you had those Studers? Since total four. Okay. I've had them and I kept waiting to use them, you know, to start doing, uh, the old analog thing where we, we cut on analog and, but the overdubs are done digitally. You know, I found that just doing everything on pro tools, uh, and eliminating tape is the way to go, as far as my ears go. And when did you last use the Studers? Uh, probably about that time, probably in the early uh, 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 2000. I haven't used them. And what do you uh, have for a board and speakers? Uh, it's just a virtual board right now. It's uh, I've got uh, Altic uh, Big Reds in my studio. Um and uh, uh, I have a little mini, just small board for opera for so you can manually do mixes and stuff. Uh, small mixing, but not, not, no large mixing. And uh, uh, I don't know which really brand what my little board is, but it's it's all computer based, you know. Okay, do you have a sponsorship with Baldwin, or do you prefer Baldwin to Steinway or Yamaha? I don't have one because I just use I use the whatever's the best for me, and uh, I was linked up with uh, a couple companies at one time, but now I'm a free agent and I'm linked up with nobody, and it's kind of hard to get uh, keyboard endorsements because they don't really give keyboards away that often. And uh, uh, but I was I was uh, associated with a larger company, um, which was Yamaha, uh, for for many years, and. Uh, uh, I used a lot of that stuff on uh, like Africa and the Total 4 record. So the Baldwin you have behind you, when did you get it? Where did it come from? It came from a, a piano tuner who was famous in town named Keith Albright, who tuned all the pianos for uh, the best play pianos in town. I bought it from him the day before we cut uh, the first tracks of the first Total record. So... The piano, my piano was there uh, on Hold the Line, which was the first track we cut in the studio. It was there uh, 
uh, for Hydra, for Turnback. I used it on Rosanna. I wrote, used it on Africa and uh, uh, all, all our other records. Uh, I've always used this piano. So uh, it has a, a special place in my heart. And uh, uh, it's been very good to me as far as playing on all uh, uh, our good, our best records. Okay. When you used it for the Toto Records, was it in your house then, or did you have it schlepped to the uh, studio? I had it schlepped. Good word. I had it schlepped to the studio. And as we went later on, when I finally got my new studio here, we started. I started doing overdubs here. But it wasn't until, you know, this this millennium here that uh, uh, I started recording it uh, away from the studio. Otherwise, I had it uh, brought there and tuned up. And uh, I brought my own mics, which were... Uh, Shep's uh, uh, stereo mics to put in the piano, and uh, uh, that was it. So how did you ultimately learn how to mic the piano and what mics to use? Asking a lot of engineers a lot of questions and just seeing whatever, whenever I was in the studio, which was many times uh, playing piano, I'd watch the different uh, guys mic the pianos. It's funny, when I went in with, uh, I used to work, I used to be in Neil Diamond's band, and uh, uh, Armin Steiner, a very famous engineer, would use two KM88s on the piano. But when Neil came in, he would change the mic. It was like a secret, his secret miking, which is to do a mono, one mic, uh, a U47, and to put it on the piano. And it sounded, it would sound amazing. So I've gone anywhere from doing stereo pairs here with C24s, uh, Shep's mics to using a mono 47. There's different ways, different sounds for different songs. Okay, if one looks at the credits of the new album, which of course is forgotten toys, not broken toys, uh, it's, a who's, it's a who's who of famous musicians. You know, looking through, how do you know Brian Eno and how did he end up working on the record? Well, actually, I didn't I didn't use any of those people on the cover right there. I just said I used them. I just put those up just to sell more records, actually. No, I never met Brian Eno. Funny enough, I've never met Brian Eno. He worked on the first Dune record uh, directly with David Lynch. And uh, the same producer that produced uh, Don Felder uh, knew him through association because he was playing with, uh, my friend was playing with um, uh, Paul Simon. And Brian Eno happened to be co-producing Paul Simon's record. So uh, my friend played him a couple of my early roughs on my album here. And apparently, this is what he told me, Brian sent him, heard the thing, and sent him uh, a couple of samples uh, to include on this one song called All uh, All the Tears That Shine. Uh, which is in the very beginning, you hear this little pulsating beacon, and you also hear it throughout the song and at the very end. And that was uh, his contribution. And I thank him for that. Uh, and I hope to meet him face to face one day. Okay. You use Mike Lang on piano, who unfortunately recently passed. As a piano player, why would you use Mike? Mike and I go back uh, to when I was 15 years old. Uh, my father was the musical director on the Glenn Campbell show. And he put together a great rhythm section for that. One of which was Mike Lang. One of which was Joe Percaro, Jeff Percaro's dad on percussion. One was Louis Shelton, uh, Seals and Crops producer. 
and uh, Paul Humphreys on drums, who played on Let's Get It On, and all these great musicians. Well, he was the piano player, and I used to sit next to him every Sunday during the Glenn Campbell show, and uh, he would teach me things like how to play Hammond organ. I didn't even know how to turn a Hammond organ on back then, you know, much less play it. And uh, I learned he, he was my mentor. And so we started talking about doing, uh, as the years kept going by, and we kept playing together on various record dates, um, we, did, we talked about possibly doing a, a record together sometime. So about eight years ago, I started, him and I started kicking around some ideas, and one of them was Lucy uh, that uh, we did. We ended up writing together. I play the head on it, and he plays the incredible solo that's in the middle, and then I finish it on Hammond organ. So uh, it was just one of those things where we kind of started a duet album, but it didn't come to fruition because he was so busy and I was quite busy. So I just, I grabbed this track for my solo record. And what about Davey Johnstone, uh, Elton's guitarist? How did he end up on the record? Davey's been a friend for over 30 years. He's been a close friend of mine. And uh, I just called Davey. I knew he was in town from Elton and, uh, uh, I asked him, I said, Davey, would you mind playing acoustic? And of course, Davey's the sweetest guy in the world. He said, of course I will. And cause I wanted this, this certain, uh, texture, uh, that he plays when he, when he plays acoustic guitar that you hear on all these Elton John records. Now what's unique about Davey's playing is every time I thought it was a hi-hat or a shaker playing, keeping like songs like Daniel together, it was Davey's guitar, his acoustic rhythm guitar is like a percussion instrument and all the Elton John records are, are 90% of them where you hear Davey playing the rhythm to the guitar. So uh, I thought he would be a great element to have. And like I said, he's a, he's a dear friend and uh, uh, it was just a, it was a magical experience. Okay. Yeah. Steve Jordan, you mentioned earlier on drums, but you also have Greg Bissonette. We all know and Robin DiMaggio, who I don't know, why are there different drummers and why are these particular people playing? Um, when I'm making a record, especially when I'm making records, have made records outside of Toto, you have to cast the music and you cast the music by casting each song. Who would be a good player on this song? So by having the luxury of uh, doing a solo album, I was able to cast each song. And uh, Joseph helped me with the casting, but uh, I knew definitely that I wanted to get uh, uh, someone like Steve Jordan for uh, uh, Queen Charade because that's the kind of drummer he is. He's very reckless and cavalier and and, uh, loose with his playing. So I knew he'd be the right guy. And uh, uh, we got, uh, we knew um, uh, Greg Bissonette from Ringo Starr. And of course I've played with Greg before on, on uh, he's played with Toto. He went out on the road with Toto for a week when uh, our drummer got sick one time. And uh, he's kind of an honorary member. And uh, we just cast these people, like I said, like the character actors, uh, whoever's right for the part, you know, and we just felt each of those drummers was right for the parts that they played. Now, if for some reason you couldn't play, who would you cast to play your parts? That's very easy. I would have Greg Fillingains in a second. Well, he ultimately played with Toto, but why do you say Greg? Great player. Because Greg is like a brother from another mother. I know that phrase is used a lot, but 
he does a version of me when I sit down and play the piano. He goes, "Oh, this is what you're. This is what you mean." And he sits down and plays exactly what I'm doing, but it's the way he plays it, and he just adds his little touches to it. He he, it's like a, a it's like a doppelganger. It's weird. It's a but he's of course he's got ten times the technique that I do. I'm not comparing myself with him because he came went out with Stevie Wonder. I mean, he joined Stevie when he was 18 years old, and he's just a phenomena. He really is. He's got perfect pitch, and uh, I hate him for being as talented as he is. <laughs> now, the single from the album was Spirit of the Moonrise, but my favorite song is Will I Belong to You. What's the story with the title? How did Will I Belong to You come together? That came together from Joseph Williams. He just had a piece, and he had a piece, and it was the really the chorus to the song, and that's all he had was that little piece. So... I said, I really, I got to write a song for that chorus because it was such a beautiful chorus, which is Will I Belong, for you, Will I Belong to You? And uh, I came up with this little uh, uh, verse um, that I thought would, would uh, be a nice uh, uh, bookend to the chorus. And uh, I'm, a, again, I'm a big Paul Simon fan and a Paul McCartney fan. So I like the acoustic. I, um, Brought in acoustic, Dean Parks on acoustic guitar and uh, uh, Nathan East on bass. And I uh, just thought that uh, uh, Joseph and I filled it out, filled the rest of the, between the uh, chorus and the verses, filled it out with some transitional music and kind of just uh, sh- tried to get uh, imaginative with arrangement. And how much of the record was cut with everybody in the room playing simultaneously, if at all? None of it. None of it was, but the, but the idea was to make it feel like that. And I think I achieved that pretty much uh, because every time I listen to the record, and I've listened to this album hundreds and hundreds of times, I always feel like I'm listening to a live performance from the guys because that's the specialty of the, of the instrumentalists that I called in, have the ability to overdub and make it feel like it's, you're, it's being done live right then. It never sounds like an overdub, to me at least with these particular players and clear mountain mixed. Did you just give him the track, say, do what you do, or do you give him a lot of instructions and why clear mountain? Not that he's not great, but why him? Yes. Yes. To both of those. I always love Bob clear mountains mixing. He mixed the Toto's album called uh, kingdom of desire. And I first, we first made contact with him. Then I was a big Brian Adams fan with all of his uh, records. Bob, of course, Bob's done everything from in excess to uh, David Bowie, and one of my favorite records, which is why I really liked him to be mixing Queen Charade on, he mixed Start Me Up for the Stones. And uh, so it was a real treat having him, the guy that mixed that record, mix mix our record. With Bob, I've usually had, with mixers, I've usually had a, 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 um, a notepad that had a, a couple of pages of notes on it. With Bob, I had, I had a whole notepad, and it only had two uh, suggestions on it. One was like, uh, turn the vocal up a little bit and turn the bass up a little bit. And it was like two suggestions and the record's done. Uh, he's so fast. He's, uh, he's another uh, Wunder kid, you know? So needless to say, the record business is very different from the heyday of Toto. To what, okay, so you're making the record. At what point do you get a record company distributor and... Are you still motivated to do it, even though it's so hard to get anything recognized today? Yeah. 
Those are all good questions. Uh, I I made the connection with the record company, which is Mascot, through Steve Lukather, who has had solo albums, more uh, I think 10 solo albums or more, probably. And Joseph was on the label, too. And I've hadn't heard nothing but good things about Mascot. So Luke started telling him, well, you know, David Pace might, because they usually have good old do guitar players. The majority of their artists are guitar players. And uh, so uh, Steve was touting me the fact that I was thinking about doing a solo record. And so he slipped them, he slipped them, slipped it in their ear. And I think that uh, as my, as I start gaining momentum and getting some tracks finished, uh, uh, it started coming together. And then I got uh, Steve Karras involved from a management standpoint. And uh, they, they were kept waiting for waiting and waiting for me to get it done. Cause I work at a snail's pace. And because uh, I have the luxury of having my studio here at home. So uh, uh, they said they were interested. And I financed the record myself up until the point where we made the deal with them. And then they came in. Uh, but uh, it's not like the old days where you can shop around all the majors and you're holding gold in your pocket. Because no one's really waiting for my record to come out. You know what I mean? Specifically. So it's a, it's a harder sell. And I try and let the music sell itself. That's another reason I did the EP, because I wanted to make sure I had all my best songs, all my best material uh, in there. And uh, the business has definitely changed from when we started uh, uh, shopping it for a deal uh, back in 1978. Okay. Now, we delayed this podcast for about a month because you were going on the road. What was being on the road like? Being on the road was me flying in to specific places, uh, uh, to places like uh, New Orleans and Nashville and Sacramento I flew into. And I played uh, the Staples Center, which is now not the Staples Center anymore. But uh, uh, And I, I do like the last five songs in the show. And it's just because I'm, I'm the, Steve Lugather made me musical director for Toto. And what I do is just kind of oversee the rehearsals and make sure all the fine tuning and details are, are uh, maintained. And, uh, and they asked me, they told me they wanted me to come out on the road whenever I can make it to come out and do that. So I started getting the road itch and, uh, wanted to play with a band because it's one of the few last, uh, venues where you can actually play live music because it's not hardly done in recording studios anymore, which where's where we used to play every single day, all day long is in recording studios. But, uh, 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 now, uh, it's on stage live, which is, which is why I think so many artists, uh, premier artists and smaller artists are touring. It's just the fact that they're keeping uh, music alive and able to do the live experience where you commune with the audience there. And it's a special, that's a special uh, moment. Like I said, it's a magical experience when you're out with an audience, they give you energy, you feed off that energy. And uh, I think that's why people love playing live. Now you were dropping in on these dates. What's your, you know, going on the road, there's a million songs, you know, the hour on stage pays for the other 23. Are you someone who likes the road, who hates the road, has done enough of the road? I've, uh, I love the two hours on stage that I play the last half an hour of, but I am, I'm past the road. Uh, I'm, have moved on 
to uh, be in a homebody here, and I still like to travel. I like to, uh, you know, but I've spent years on buses and uh, have done the road thing. And uh, as I'm getting, uh, not old, but a little bit older here, uh, uh, riding on a bus doing one-nighters is a little heavy for me now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Okay, you say you work at a snail's pace. Go a little deeper. Why so slow? Why so slow? Because I'm a perfectionist. And I know I know how to I pay attention to details. Now the way the the reason I got into details was when uh, my first record date uh, hit record was a song called Diamond Girl with Seals and Crofts, and uh, uh, I learned from Louis Shelton and Jimmy Seals specifically to not let anything go by to to make sure everything was just just right with either vocals or the rhythm track and i'm talking about microscopic details that the normal listener would never pay attention to or notice and this is how you get those clean uh layered records like seals and crofts used to do steely dan is another group that we learned from my jeff percaro and myself were paying attention watching them while they made uh pretzel logic and katie lied 
and they were they were so uh uh microscopic with all the details and the little ticks and pops in the tape and anything that would make a little sound they were fanatical about uh having clean records and uh this is back in the analog days so it was a little bit more of uh there was more uh had to be maintenance done with machines and cutting tape to edit and all these kind of things that they don't do anymore but uh uh, again, back to your wine saying, well, I move, move at a snail's pace because I like to take my time and uh, I cover a lot of details, but I also have a life here. I like to go out in the w- water of my garden and uh, I like to swim occasionally and ride my bike and uh, do things that uh, to keep me in shape. So it's not just music. You Music used to be 24-7 uh, since I was 10 years old up until... Uh, you know, just recently when I started, uh, uh, you know, uh, just balancing my time. I think life's, life's a matter of balance. Okay, we know about Becker and Fagan. Tell me a little bit more about working with Louis Shelton. Louis Shelton was one of the great guitar players, session guitar players in town. He's right up there with Dean Parks, Larry Carlton, one of those kind of guys. But he was the first real session guy that started producing music for people so he would do it like uh, a session guy would do it which is to pay potential particular attention to these details and uh he was i gained a relationship again on the glenn campbell show when i used to see him every sunday so i i was familiar with jamming with him a little bit but he was such a good record producer that uh he let me actually get my hands on the knobs and turn pan pots and turn echo knobs and turn faders and and actually uh, taught me how to produce. So uh, he was a, a huge mentor uh, along with Jimmy Seals. Another thing I wanted to just back up for a second and mention about doing synthesizers and keyboards on ins- on albums. Quincy Jones, when we were doing Thriller, Quincy Jones said that doing synthesizers, synth overdubs on Thriller was like painting a 747 with a toothbrush, okay? That gives you an idea. Of, that's why I take so much time making my records, okay? Because that's that's the kind of detail and a kind of, uh, it's a combination of science and music when you get into synthesizers and sonics, really, you know, with engineers. Microphones. I have good microphones here. I've got C, a C24. I've got U-47s. I have... Uh, uh, Telefunken 250. I've got Shep's mics. So, uh, you know, we're all trying to do this. Does does this need to be acoustic or should it be sampled? We're in that age right now. Okay. You talked about life balance. Was this a revelation at some point that, man, or you just said, I don't want to do that anymore? And what does this balance look like? Well, the, the balance came from my upbringing with my parents. My father was a jazz com- uh, arranger and a jazz pianist who became a big orchestrator and orchestral conductor for people like Ray Charles and, and Ella Fitzgerald and Barbara Streisand. And my mom was a, a, a bookkeeper. So they taught me there's got to be a balance in life here and made sure that I always was able to play a little bit of sports when I was growing up as well as practice the piano, but they always wanted to make sure that I had a normal upbringing, you know, that it wasn't just all Hollywood and just all music, music, music. So I got that from my ingrained, uh, infused in my DNA from my folks. But uh, 
I think as I got older here, I think I had a couple of wake-up calls that uh, let me know that uh, the touring thing, I just wasn't able to uh, 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 keep up uh, physically with the touring thing. And I ended up suffering from fatigue and exhaustion and a little bit of depression and anxiety. And uh, those are kind of all warning signs that I needed to try and hang up my road boots. Now, you've only been married once, right? This is true. This is unusual in this business, too. That's why I'm asking, what, yeah. why did your relationship sustain when so many don't? I think because my wife has a sense of humor about me. She doesn't take me seriously, I think. And uh, we get along great, and we keep laughing, and I think it's mutual respect. You know, she was a professional food stylist and used to go on location, and I used to go on location when we first got married. So we'd meet up every once in a while uh, to discuss our marriage uh, a date and uh, ended up uh, just hitting it off immediately. So how did you actually meet her? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I promised myself I'd never tell this story. Uh, I met on a blind date. Our engineer, Greg Ladani, uh, was working with us, and his wife was working with my uh, with, with Lorraine, my soon-to-be wife, and uh, so she set me up. She said, Greg, I've got a, a girl that David needs to go out with. So I hired a limousine, and then she got cold feet. And so I invited my band because I was going to take them to a, a fancy restaurant that I had invested in, blah, blah, blah. And uh, the band, uh, Lorraine decided she wanted to go on the, on the, on the uh, date. So it coughed me off guard. So... My band showed up just before she showed up, and they ended up sitting in the limo, and I sat in the front seat with my uh, girlfriend, Lorraine, uh, with the limo driver all the way to the restaurant. That was my first date experience, which was like, it couldn't be worse, but she made it, she was laughing the whole time. She thought it was hysterical, and that's why uh, we're still married. And how often do you play? I try and play every day, and I just about do. I try and practice uh, at least a half an hour a day. And uh, sometimes I play a couple hours at least. And uh, I find that I need to, uh, even when I go on the road, I just got back from uh, the Zurich Film Festival. Uh, and I always bring a little keyboard with me so I can practice in my room to, to uh, keep up my chops. Otherwise, if I go two or three days without playing, uh, I just, everything starts tightening up a little bit. Okay. So you grew up in the Valley where? I grew up, I was born and raised in Reseda. And uh, that's where my folks lived on uh, Hesperian Satakoy in the Valley. And when they were five years old, my parents moved to Hidden Hills, which wasn't all foo-foo at the time. And it was just hardly anybody but poorest people out there. And my dad, they told my dad he had to get out of uh, the Valley and move outside out to the outskirts because he wasn't getting enough sleep uh, uh, writing arrangements and stuff. So it was for health reasons. He ventured out into the Hidden Hills area, which has become, you know, the home of the Kardashians now. But right, that's, right. Where I that's where I lived from five until 21, the when I went, entered college. And uh, so uh, that's, that's how I grew up. That's where I was a valley boy, you know. And where do you live now? I live in Calabasas. Okay, uh, not that far. 
I know. <laughs> but I kind of where uh, I grew up, right across the freeway from where I grew up, uh, off of Mulholland Drive. Okay, when did you realize your father was a musician, and when did you become interested, fascinated by that? Uh, when I went to, a, my dad took us to a concert, I think, and I think it was Al Hurt who was playing trumpet, and uh, they introduced my father in the audience at the Greek Theater, and he stood up and took a bow, and that's when we knew. Wow. That, that's when we knew that dad was something. Yeah, my dad used to get singled out because he was a very prolific arranger and they would single him out and make him stand up and take bows whenever he was with somebody like because he arranged for such so many of the greats i mean he arranged for sinatra he arranged for sammy davis jr dean martin ella fitzgerald lena horn and the list goes on you know he was a because he handled big orchestras that's what his claim to fame was that he wrote classical style or, or string parts and orchestral music uh like uh, take the take for instance the way we were. My dad uh, produced and arranged that record for Barbara Streisand, so he was he was pretty much of a icon and a legend. You know, how did he get into it? Interesting question. His father was from Cro- Croatia originally and wanted him to be an accordion teacher, so he bought him an accordion when I think my dad was uh, like twelve years old, in hopes that he would be an accordion teacher. And my dad loved jazz so much, he started uh, learning how to write music and learning how to play jazz and uh, ended up joining the Air Force Band in the Army, uh, which he still played accordion, believe it or not, in the jazz band. I have a picture of that. And uh, uh, he just kept at it and at it. And then he finally uh, went to USC and the, the L.A. Conservatory of with by the way, which his colleagues at the time were John Williams and Andre Previn. Uh, and he learned, he got a master's degree in uh, composition uh, from USC and uh, uh, learned how to write fugues and, uh, and uh, all the classical training that he needed to uh, launch into doing orchestras. So how many kids in the family? My, my family? Yeah. Uh, I have one daughter. No, when you were growing up, brothers, sisters? I I had one sister, one older sister. Okay. So at what point do you start taking lessons? I started taking lessons around eight years old. I started playing the piano when I was about five. I think my dad had done two versions of a song called Blues in the Night. My mama done told him. That, That little riff right there was the first thing that I ever picked out on the piano. And my father noticed it. I think he was doing it for Mel Torme, either him or Ella Fitzgerald at the time. I think it was Mel Torme, though. And uh, I just picked that out on the piano. And then uh, I decided after sitting next to Shelly Mann and Louis Belson, I wanted to be a drummer when I was very young, about five, six, seven years old. So I get to use sit next to drummers like Shelly Mann, Louis Belson. And... Uh, uh, my dad, I said, I wanted to do this for a living, like my father. And I was only seven or eight. And he says, well, you're going to have to start studying seriously if you really want to do that. So I started with my piano lessons at eight years old. And uh, uh, when I got to be 12, my dad says, now you got to really take it seriously. I was playing Little League at the time, and I was a catcher. And uh, he told me that I would end up uh, uh, hurting my hands if I kept on doing a catcher because he had a 
cousin that was a professional catcher and he had all broken fingers and stuff anyway i didn't want i definitely uh nudged me to being a musician and at 13 i got a, a classical uh pianist teacher that uh, trained me for the next four to five years uh and uh it gave, gave me all my sound and technique it really changed my life so you're taking piano lessons how much are you putting into it? You know, I took piano lessons. The big thing was practicing and we yeah. didn't. We so, didn't. Right. Well, not enough. You know, you go back the next week, whatever. Right. So what, uh, you know, you were dedicated and what happened to the drums? The drums, uh, I found out, <laughs> this is another funny story. Not funny to me, but funny. Uh, the Louis Belson ended up giving my dad a set of drums to give to me. Okay. Well, my father, who wanted me to be a piano player, not a drummer, never gave me the set of drums I was supposed to get. So, <laughs> okay. So when I I never knew that. All I had was a snare drum and a ride cymbal from Louis Belson, which was uh, to me I was uh, I was in heaven, I was in paradise just with that, and a hi hat, a snare drum, and a ride cymbal, Zildjian, and uh, because he figured that. If push comes to shove, the only guy that gets hired uh, is always the piano player. When they don't have a budget for anybody, you always see uh, piano players in lounges and hotels and parties playing by themselves, which is what my dad did primarily before he became a professional jazz musician, was to go on the road and play for singers. Uh, Dorothy Dandridge, was uh, he accompanied her, and uh, Peggy Lee also. And, uh, uh, so he instilled in me that, uh, uh, he said, you don't, uh, want to be, uh, an, an old guy having to lug all your drums around. There's always a piano there. And now I, I told him, I remember I called him and said, dad, now I have three and a half tons worth of gear. I got to transport from one stage to another. And I, the irony in that just, uh, it, it just made us both laugh. Okay, you're a year younger than me, so we're essentially the same time. I'm growing up on the East Coast in the suburbs. You're in the heart of the action. So what do I remember? I remember the folk scene and then the surf and car scene, and then the Beatles came along and everybody formed bands. What yeah. was going on for you? I was uh, playing drums in a surf band. I was eight years old and uh, doing Wipeout, doing the solo to Wipeout, and then um, I had a, uh, an epiphany. My dad did a uh, record uh, with Johnny Rivers called Poor, Poor Side of Town. It was Johnny Rivers' first hit single, and there was a piano player that played the track on it named Larry Nectal. Now, I know he's not that familiar to a lot of people out there, but he played the piano on Paul Simon's Bridge Over Troubled Waters. And he was the most incredibly talented, new, funky player I'd ever heard in my life brilliant player i mean if you hear uh, bridge over trouble waters you can see what kind of player this guy is and he played on so many people's hit records he also played bass on the uh you've lost that love and feeling and uh that was my epiphany as soon as i heard what he was playing because he didn't play rock and roll like the, the older guys jazz guys where they played the triplets up high uh, he was down on the last low two octaves of the piano, rolling its sound, so it sounded like a rhythm guitar. And I was just amazed by that. And I uh, just gravitated toward that and started uh, f 
following him, sitting next to him on sessions so I could steal everything that he knew. Okay, you're growing up. When I was growing up at the same time, had the transistor under the pillow, but you were in Hollywood. You know, to what degree were you a fan of popular music, listening on the radio, dedicated, or it was more about playing sports? What no, was it like? For I you? was credibly submerged in music. Uh, my dad was working with great artists. I was just taken by all the artists at the time. I love folk rock. I love country. I love classical stuff. Uh, I loved all the music of the time, especially the Beatles. I'm still a huge Beatles fan and a Rolling Stones fan. And uh, to this day, uh, uh, again, like you said, we kind of dropped off. The surf music dropped off, and we started wanting to play in bands that were playing Jimi Hendrix and the Beatles and uh, 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 Traffic kind of songs. I'd, I'd play, I got in a band that we did nothing but Traffic and Hendrix songs. So uh, I That's was That's an interesting combination. It is. It is. But those were the kind of songs that we did. That was back in the day. You know, you'd see have Sly Stone on a bill with Hendrix and Chicago uh, right. in the stadium, you know? So that was kind of, they were more diverse back then when it comes to putting acts together, I think. And oh, I think I had a very, because my dad was required listening, he was he got all these free records all the time because he was doing TV shows and they'd give him a a, a, a not for sale um, demo demonstration record. And uh, so I was listening to the Beatles before people were, and uh, uh, people like Glenn Campbell. I was uh, my dad was friends with all the Wrecking Crew, so I used to sit next to those guys all the time in the Wrecking Crew individually. But my dad never really used the Wrecking Crew, but he did use um, Lou Adler put a version of the Wrecking Crew together, which was Hal Blaine, Joe Osborne, Larry Nectel and Tommy Tedesco, along with John Phillips. And this, these were made up of all the Mamas and Papas uh, records, which my dad started to arrange strings for. He did Johnny, he was doing Johnny Rivers at the time. Then he did The Fifth Dimension, which is where I met, um, this goes into my songwriting beginning, which is I met yeah. Jimmy Webb when I was 10, and Jimmy Webb was 17, and had a huge influence on me when he was doing the first Fifth Dimension album. And, uh, uh, to this day, uh, again, uh, that's where I started getting into songwriting and wanting to become a songwriter. And right after that, Elton John's first album came out, and I just it just opened the whole door for me, you know? Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback 
with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. When did you actually start writing songs and how frequently and how good were they? I started writing when I was about 13. I think it was about the time the first Elton John song came out, and I started uh, trying to imitate him. All my first songs were horrible. You know, they were just imitations of Elton John's first album, The King Must Die. Uh, Love that record. Yeah, I love that record. And uh, uh, I wasn't writing too often because, again, I was a little bit slow, but I I really wanted to do, to be Elton John. And so to perform on piano and write songs like that. And I just kept at it, you know, uh, writing bad song after bad song. Of course, they were incredible to me because I, I was trying to, trying to be like Elton. Uh, but uh, I was going to an all-boys prep school at the time called Chaminade, which people probably know in the area. It was an all-boys school. And I had short hair and horn ring glasses, kind of like Elton you see on in his pictures. So I could really relate to him also uh, as a uh, as a dude, and uh, uh, I just started writing and trying writing and writing, and then I wrote a song. Uh, my dad started doing the Glenn Campbell show in about seventy one, I think, and I wrote a song. My first hit record, a semi hit record, was a country western song called "Houston, I'm Coming to See You." And it was uh, uh, Glenn Campbell made it a title track on his uh, album. And uh, so that gave me the uh, c- confidence to keep writing and to keep uh, at it. Okay, little bit slower. How did you write that song? How did it get in front of Glenn Campbell? And how okay. did you feel when he did cut it? Okay, good questions. Uh, again, my, my dad was doing the Glenn Campbell show. Jimmy Webb had been writing all of Glenn's uh, uh, hit records, which had to do with By the Time I Get to Phoenix, Galveston, uh, Wichita Lineman, all these city songs. So I thought, well, I'll just do, I'll just follow along Jimmy Webb's lines and write a song called Houston. And so I made up a little ditty. And if you get a chance, you listen to it, you'll see how I'm kind of trying to be like Jimmy Webb on it. 
And then my father, unbeknownst to me, was so impressed with it. And I just did it. I had a little Revox two-track that would belong to my father where you could do sound on sound and you could overdub with it. So uh, my father snagged the tape and played it for Glenn Campbell. Uh, just my little rough demo that I would have never in a million years played anybody as to this day. And Glenn said he liked it and he wanted to cut it. And I just, I was taken aback. I was just flabbergasted, you know, that we, I, he actually wanted to do my song. So immediately I'm thinking, well, we got to get Hal Blaine, Joe Osborne, and the Wrecking Crew guys cut my song. Like, uh, you know, I thought I was uh, at a, one of the Wrecking Crew myself, you know, at the time. And uh, that started it all for me. Got on a station. Now, check this out. Uh, there was this country western station uh, that I used to listen to when I was going to USC. It's called K-Barbecue. How's that for a radio station? KBBQ. And uh, they they played it all the time. Did you ever get paid for it? I sure did. I got a union double scale, and I got uh, I got some royalties. I also won a publishing award that year uh, for the most played songs, uh, ASCAP award. I think I got, uh, and I got flown to Nashville and met uh, Roy Clark and uh, all the the big country stars there. What'd you do with the money? What I do with the money? Uh, put it toward a car. Well, that's what I figured. Yeah, <laughs> put it car. All all my money, all my money came from bar mitzvahs, weddings, and that song. But mainly bar mitzvahs and weddings for four years. All 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 to pay for a car. What was the car ultimately? It was an Econoline van three hundred. Because I, of course, I'm a keyboard player. I have to be able be able to fit a Fender Rhodes or a Hammond organ to to get to the gig. So I bought an Econoline 300. Now, the interesting part about this story is I used to go on the road with Sonny and Cher, and I would park. My parents had another ranch up in San Inez Valley, and uh, uh, I used to keep my van at the ranch when I'd go on the road with Sonny and Cher for six weeks or Seals and Crofts, I'd tour with them. And I came back off the road one day and my van was gone. And I said, uh, what, where's my van? And my dad said, I sold it. And I, and, and I said, what do you mean you sold it? He goes, it's on my property. He goes, uh, it's mine when it's on my property. This is my dad. Who was like, he was like a junk collector also. And uh, he said, yeah, it was on my property, so I sold it. I said, well, how much money did you get for it? He said, $1,500. I said, what did you do with the money? He said, I spent it, you know? And and it uh, uh, it just solidified our, our relationship so much more. <laughs> wait, wait, I that mean, sounds like a bad story. It is, why did, it is. Why, why, did, well, it sarcastic. why did it solidify I'm, your relationship? I'm being sarcastic right now, trying to be. Okay, so your relationship with your father was not good as you got older? Well, it, no, it was, I always had a great relationship with my father. Him and I, I used to get to work with him. I was his, like his wingman on sessions. I started out as a pencil sharpener, which me and Joseph Williams talk about this all the time. He did the same thing I did with his dad, John Williams, which was all we did was sharpen our dad's pencils when we were allowed in the room with him to listen to them writing music because it was very little music being played on piano most of it was writing between his father and my father well i I, let me so i was talking about the relationship with your father but let's just move on yeah you play in that band with wipeout and drums at eight 
The Beatles yes. hit when the Beatles hit when you're ten. Yeah. At what point do you start playing in bands? I start playing in bands. Well, look again. The first band I was on drums. Okay, that's my surf band thing. But then I started getting uh, there wasn't any really electric piano instruments, so I started playing acoustic piano when everybody else had electric guitars and bass. I was playing up spinet spinet pianos at uh, dances uh, for schools and stuff like that. I must have been 11, 11 years old when I started playing uh, in bands with acoustic piano. And of course, you couldn't hear me, so we'd always uh, put a vocal mic into another channel in the amplifier and stick it down in the piano so you could hear the piano, which I think a lot of piano players had to do that at, the, at that time because there was no Fender Rhodes yet. But then... It, a life-changing situation happened. My dad got me a Fender Rhodes, 88. And that just all of a sudden I was able to be uh, joining a band. That's when you saw KHJ giving away all that Fender gear and they were giving away Fender pianos. Well, my dad happened to know someone that had an endorsement, which was Louis Belson, the drummer. And uh, uh, I got a Fender Rhodes. And shortly after that, was was when my dad did the Glenn Campbell show, and he he hired Joe Percaro. No, this is no lie. Hired him, uh, and he just Joe had just moved out from Connecticut, and Joe Percaro's son was Jeff Percaro, and Jeff's band, which is called the Merciful Souls, had just won the Battle of the Bands contest in the Valley, in the San Fernando Valley, and they had just lost their piano player. I think he passed away. And Joe says, they're looking for a piano player. You should get together with my son and arrange for us to switch numbers. And that's when I met Jeff Percaro when I was like 14 and a half, 15 years old. And uh, uh, we became best friends, and I played with him ever since. Okay, so those bands that you played at bar mitzvah parties, etc., that was with the Porcaro brothers? No, those were different bands. There were the Shermer brothers and Dan Holtzman. And his brother, uh, these were specific, specific bar mitzvah wedding bands, like the weddings, like when you see the movie The Wedding Singer. Well, that's the way these bands were, but all the musicians in the bands were like that. So I was a little bit, I was a better musician than the guys in most of the bands. But every once in a while, a, a good drummer would come in, and we'd start taking freedoms with the uh, songs and turning them into jazz songs and everything like that. So I got a lot of experience. I got a lot of time, to, uh, a chance to play different standards and uh, learn how to uh, basically play uh, weddings and bar mitzvahs. And how often did you play? I did about two, three, between five and six uh, engagements every weekend for four years. Wow. Yeah. Two engagements a day. Wow. Okay. Oh, yeah. So that was work, although you're gaining skills. What about playing traffic, playing Hendrix? Was that with the Porcaros? Where who was that with? That was with the Porcaros. That's and uh, and also I had, there was an intermediate band before I met Jeff. I uh, there was in a band with a guy named Dan Ferguson, who's uh, one of our best friends and a credible guitarist. And him and I started a band together with another singer, and we brought a drummer in from Canoga High, I think. And we start doing Hendrix songs and traffic songs. Uh, to, for there's a uh, in Hidden Hills, there was a place called the Hidden Hills Pool, and they used to have dances there. And we got the gig playing a dance at the pool. So we had a singer 
who had a strobe, believe it or not, had a microphone and a strobe light, which is why we hired him. Okay. And, uh, uh, it turned out to be a credible gig. And, uh, uh, this time went on, uh, and we broke up kind of in high school and that's just when I met Jeff. So did you ever meet or work with Stevie Winwood? I met him one time on the phone. Oh, no, I met him. I met him. Also met him. Uh, they were doing a tribute to Mike Yamaha. Did a Mike McDonald, I think, tribute, and I think Stevie Winwood was there, and I got to meet him. But Jim Horn, there's a very famous saxophone player who I met when I was 12 years old. Uh, very famous guy named Jim Horn, who's played with the Beatles. He's played with Clapton and the Stones. Everybody knows Jim Horn. Well, uh, uh, he introduced, he, he, he said, uh, I want, there's, someone's going to call you today. And I was in Nashville with Jim and the phone rang and it was Jim. And it was Stevie Winwood on the phone. Cause he knew I was a Stevie Winwood fan and he introduced himself to me on the phone. And I just, I was in heaven. I was just like, uh, I was walking on clouds, you know, cause Stevie Winwood was a big, big influence on me. And when you played with the Porcaros, did you ever play for money or were you just playing in the garage? We were at the first time we were playing in the garage, but there's an old joke that says, how do you want, how do you get a band to get together and play? You find, get them a gig, you know? So they were rehearsing for a gig at the time. We were learning all these songs. So they had to teach me all the new songs, which were mainly Blood, Sweat and Tears songs, uh, Buddy Miles songs. And Sly and the Family Stones songs, you know? And uh, I brought in a little bit more of the rock and roll stuff. I brought in the Rolling Stones, Give Me Shelter, and Three Dog Night. And that's what kind of stuff I was listening to. Okay. Many musicians in that era did not go to college. How did you end up going to college and did you finish? My dad uh, went to college and I had a long talk with my dad. Dad, should I go to college? And he goes... He told me, he says, that's a good question. He goes, musically, I'm fine. I'm going to be fine musically. But he says, his advice to me was, you're going to go to college one day, and that one day you're going to learn something that's going to change your life and be with you for the rest of your life. And so I just took his advice. I had total faith in my father, and I went to USC for two and a half years. And in fact, there was a day came when they taught uh, modulation. Uh, in USC, which is how to modulate from transition from one key to another key. Well, I found out that you have six six different possibilities because you have three three notes on the left hand, three notes on the right hand, uh, and for chords, actually four notes on each hand. So you can uh, uh, pivot between any of those four or eight notes uh, as far as uh, changing keys. So I've used it to this day. And as far as my songwriting, that's why I'm able to... Uh, navigate through the song structures and always find something interesting to do because I know how to pivot and modulate into uh, lots of different keys. Why did you drop out? And then what'd you do? Uh, I stopped, stopped attending classes because I was on the road too much. I was, uh, I was conducting for Sunny and Cher. And unfortunately they didn't have any internship program at USC. I mean, I told them, and I asked me how much money I was making, and uh, I was making twice as much as the teachers, so they kind of got a little bugged at that. And then I, I always thought you didn't, have, as long as you took the tests, you could pass college. Well, they started marking me down for attendance 
because I was I was on the charts. I was working with Seals and Crofts and Sonny and Cher and doing professional gigs. But they 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 I might as well be playing billiards at a pool hall for all they cared at the time. There, you know, I'm sure it's changed now because they have the Thornton School of Music and they have movie sound stages and they teach rec- record production. But all that was uh, that was like joining the circus at the time. So. How did you first get these road gigs, and who did it start with, and who did it evolve to? My first road gig was with Sonny and Cher, and funnily enough, Jeff Percaro had just gotten the gig before I did. So Jeff was the first guy, and he left high school early, didn't graduate high school. He went back and got his diploma, but he left high school early to go on the road with Sonny and Cher, and they were huge at the time. They were like the- So how did you get the gig? I got the gig- because my dad ended up, Sonny Bono, they called my dad to arrange a song for Cher's album, I believe. Sonny was producing, and he'd heard about Marty Page. He knew Marty Page, and he asked him to arrange a couple songs. Well, my dad, dad hired me, which is something he rarely did back then, hired me to play uh, on this song, and Sonny Bono heard me and really flipped out over my playing. So... Jeff Percaro calls Sonny and says, I have the new keyboard player for you. And Sonny goes, let tell that guy to stand down. I just found a new keyboard player. So when I showed up at Jeff's house, Sonny Bono showed, showed up and he goes, here's the new keyboard player. And Jeff goes, well, that's the guy. I just joined my band right there. It was I was the same guy. And that's how I got the gig because Sonny hired me and Jeff uh, recommended him to me. So how long did you work with Sonny and Cher? What was that like? That was probably about three years. Uh, that was fantastic. Uh, they had private jets at the time. And uh, believe it or not, I came right out of all-boys high school. And the jet that they hired was the Hugh Hefner Playboy jet. So, <laughs> so it was like uh, put, put us in a, in a candy shop, you know what I mean? And uh, uh, I was on the road with them for three years. But this is they'd go on the road for six weeks. And then come back for three months, go on the road for six weeks, come back for three months, that kind of thing. But we did a little time in Vegas. I was a musical conductor at the Sahara Hotel. My main name was up on the marquee, and I was about 19 years old. And uh, uh, that's my Sonny and Cher experience. Okay. Were you taking, were you partaking of the fruits of the road? Well, funny you should mention that, Bob, because I just... I had to sign an NDA before I did your program today that forbids me to talk about any uh, rock and roll mischief during that time, okay? Well, that would imply that you did partake in rock and roll well, mischief. We had a couple of cups of coffee, and uh, uh, like I said, there was the 80s, 70s and 80s, and uh, 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 we'll just leave it at that. Okay, so uh, you're working with Sonny and Cher. They're working like, you know, once every couple of months. Are you doing any sessions? Are you just going to school? How do you start doing sessions? I'm uh, Once I did, uh, I was going to school. They were even flying me in to go to school because they wanted me to keep me. And my dad says, well, he's going to school. They said, we'll fly him into USC. So I go to school once a week uh, on their ticket. And uh, uh, what happened? Then the big day came when I did Diamond Girl for Louis Shelton. And as soon as that became a hit record, and there's a there you can pretty much hear my piano part on it pretty good, 
uh, uh, the word got around and I started getting hired for sessions, a lot of sessions, but I was still doing bar mitzvahs and weddings at the same time. I carried that on because it's always musicians need to pick up money where they can get money. You know, it's not a steady, steady job like a nine to fiver. Although it became that later on when I started getting really busy with sessions. Okay. So you work with Sonny and Cher for three years. Why does that end and you go out back out on the road or what? That ended because I think Sonny and Cher were having a, they broke up, their marriage broke up, but then they kept it together for a little while. And uh, we were, we were, my dad became the musical director on the Sonny and Cher show after that. And Jeff and I were both playing on that show. And then I think the show either got canceled or something else took it for a break. I think another show came in and replaced it. And uh, so we all started looking for gigs. And that's when Jeff joined. I thought we were going to get out of uh, the, the ending result out of doing all these gigs was going to be put another put our band back together from high school after we eventually got experience down the road. But Jeff got an invitation to join Steely Dan, which he accepted because he was a gigantic Steely Dan freak. And, uh, and he joined Steely Dan. So I thought, well, there's, there's goes my dream, you know, on that we'll never be able to put the band together and I won't be able to be Elton John. And, uh, uh, it's just looked dismal. And then, uh, Steely Dan broke up and started hiring session guys, which they kept hiring Jeff, but they didn't had more, no more road band. So, uh, Jeff decided, uh, uh, after Silk Degrees, which I'm jumping ahead here after Silk Degrees, a lot of wait, 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 wait! Don't jump ahead. I won't jump ahead. Okay, Sonny and Cher. Do you go out with any other bands after Sonny and Cher? Yes, I went out with Seals and Crofts, and uh, the only people else I went out with was we're getting to that, which is Boz Skaggs. After okay, that. so you work with uh, Louis Shelton. You start to get uh, studio gigs. At what point can you give up the weekend gigs? And just be a studio musician. A couple years after, uh, uh, I think Diamond Girl hit. I think I was doing three dates a day, five days a week, which is pretty good. And uh, uh, you know, I think I stopped taking bar mitzvahs and weddings, and I was able to afford that. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time you name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store, clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah. Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. 
When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Okay. Most musicians are heavily networked. Did you get all these studio gigs through your network? Were you working it? At what point could you just wait for the phone to ring? What was going on? Uh, I was waiting for the phone to ring a lot of times. A lot of musicians like to network and hang out. Well, my father was always the thing. My father never called anybody for work. So he was always, wait, they'll call you. Don't call them. They'll call you. So I was mainly sitting around waiting for the phone to ring. And sometimes it would be a contractor saying, your father wants you for a date. Sometimes my father would hire me and it would be great because I would be on the inside of the loop uh, as far as the parts go. And uh, so uh, uh, it's mainly word of mouth. And that's how uh, uh, musicians get their thing is credits on albums was that's how networking was done back in the day, you know? And then what kind of sessions were you doing? Uh, I was doing R&B sessions. I started working at Motown, which was called Mo West, where I got to work with uh, uh, people like Dean Parks, people like Clarence McDonald. Uh, we very rarely knew who the artist was because on the top of the page, they wouldn't put the artist's names. They would just cut a track and because sometimes it would go to Diana Ross. Sometimes it would go to Thelma Houston. And sometimes you just didn't know who the artist was on it. So I, I think I worked on some things for Thelma Houston and Diana Ross. But uh, uh, other than that, I was working a lot at Motown. I started doing more Seals and Crofts records. And what else was I doing? Just a lot of demos and a lot of freelancing sessions of people that, that you'd never heard, you know? So how does it turn into Silk Degrees? It turns into Silk Degrees. Uh, one of those dates that Jeff did, uh, Boz Skaggs decided he wanted to produce a blues guitarist named Les Dudek, who was in the Almond Brothers at the time. And Jeff got the call to go play with them. Well, they needed an organ player, so Jeff threw my name in the basket, and they called me. And so I got to play organ and jam, and me and Jeff were jamming with him on this album entitled Les Dudek. And that's where I met Boz Skaggs, through Jeff Percaro, which I'll, I'll always be grateful for, you know. 
Okay, so you're playing on the Les Dudek album, which I actually own. And how do you end up working with Boz? Boz is looking to do work with a co-writer, which he never did before. And he wanted to be a keyboard player, he thought. And uh, Jeff told him, I've got the perfect guy for you, David Page, because I've been playing my songs, start the beginnings of my songs on the first album. I Every time we had a session, I would always, we'd always start jamming on our songs that we wanted to record eventually when we made a band, which wasn't existing yet. So uh, Boz uh, decided he wanted to co-write the next album with me. And so we went up to my dad's place up in San Inez, the ranch, and uh, he sat down on my dad's piano and we wrote half the album. We wrote Lowdown, we wrote Lido Shuffle, we wrote Jump Street, we wrote It's Over, uh, and... Uh, we're All Alone was on that. We wrote that there. Uh, Boz mainly wrote that. Uh, and uh, that's how it happened. Then I got Jeff Ricaro and David Hungate, the Sonny and Cher rhythm section, who became the total rhythm section. Uh, and Louis, I added Louis Shelton to that compliment. So you're talking about on the Boz Skaggs record, I just took the, Louis, the, the Seals and Crofts rhythm section, which was Hungate, Jeff Ricaro, and myself, and added Louis Shelton to it. And that's that's that was almost total because Louis okay. Louis wanted to be in the band real bad. Okay, so wait, Louis wanted to be in Boz's band, or he wanted to be in what became Toto. He wanted to be in what became Toto. But really, we, yeah. But we felt, but we we ran into Lukather too too early, you know. Okay, before we get to Lukather, did you have any idea how big those songs were going to be? No. We were trying to just make great music. And uh, we had done, you know, this was my first chance. I really got to do all the arranging on it and uh, and uh, laying the tracks out. But we had no idea, we because we were trying to do sophisticated stuff. I mean, the lowdown is more of a excuse me, sophisticated song than most songs at that time were getting radio play. We, I have to admit, it sounds jazzier to me. And uh, so that caught every, that was the first big single off of it. No, I think It's Over was the first single. And then uh, uh, Lowdown became the next one after that. And it just started getting, it took off like a bullet. And I think it got to number two with a bullet. And uh, uh, that's when we got an ideal that uh, when then Boz got management at right after that. And it was Irving Azoff. Well, Irving had the Eagles, and he had Boss Skaggs, so he just started selling a shitload of records. Uh, they were still selling like 100,000 records a day at the peak of uh, Soak Degrees. And the only album that was ahead of that, well, we never got to number one, was Frampton Comes Alive was number one for like 12 weeks. So we, we were always at number two with a bullet, never got to number one with Soak Degrees. What did Joe Wissard add or not add? He took care of most of the vocals with Boz, and uh, and he, you know, picked helped pick the takes and just uh, in general the overdubs, the background vocals and stuff. But uh, it was a, a combination of me and him that made the album. Okay, so when Boz went on the road, did you go on the road with him? Yes, I went on the road. Uh, Jeff went on the road, and I think Hungate went on. Yeah, Hungate went on the road too, and I forget who was playing the other guitar part. And I think that uh, 
Steve Piccaro at this time had just left Gary Wright, and I think he was looking for a job. And Boz, we needed a second keyboard player to do over for the overdub parts, and we hired Steve Bercaro, uh to come in and be a part of the rhythm section. So now we had Jeff, David Hungate, myself, and Steve Bercaro. Okay. You must have made a fortune on Silk Degrees. Uh, I had a couple of nickels to rub together. Do you still own that publishing? Yes. I own all my publishing. Okay. Would you, in this heyday of uh, 18 to 22 multiple, would you ever sell it? Not on that kind of multiple. Maybe give me a 27, 28 multiple and, uh, and we'll, we, uh, I'll consider it, you know. I really don't want to sell my publishing at this point. I know everybody else is the big fads to do, and it's and it's a little bit touchy because of the way the financing's going in the United States and how the economy going, and uh, uh, it's tempting, uh, uh, but uh, I would not sell my publishing at this point, at the moment. I I don't believe in it. You know the light. You know the term of copyright is life plus seventy years. That's a yeah. long time, you know. What are you going to do with the money after you get it? Never mind the wax that the government and other people take from it. So, after Boz, uh, Silk Degrees, what's the next thing you're working on? What did we work on? I think we worked, I wasn't sure when we worked on Steely Dan, Katie Lied album. We, I did. I worked on Black Friday and Dr. Wu on the Katie Lied album. And that was salt and peppered in between the Boss Skaggs years because I remember Donald and Walter had heard Silk Degrees and really loved it. So that's why they, I think they hired me and Jeff to play on Katie Lied. I may be mistaken, but that's how I remember it. And I'm sticking with that story. So uh, uh, then after that, uh, I started getting into the Quincy Jones camp, uh, which he was doing uh, James Ingram and Donna Summers at the time. Now, how I got in there was Steve Bercaro was a very sought-after synthesis. He was uh, programming synths and playing synths for people like David Foster, who did all the Chicago stuff, and uh, uh, Steve started doing all the Quincy Jones uh, stuff, and he got me into the session. I actually kind of snuck into the session. Uh, I was carrying a piece of gear, and Steve said, well, why don't you have David play the part? So I started playing parts, and they were like, the engineer was like, well, this you're pretty good. You should stay. I was kind of uh, snuck in there, you know. I'd actually known Quincy Jones, met him when I was 14, because my dad had been a ranger on some of his solo records. So I had met Quincy at a very early age. So he knew of me, but really I wasn't in his uh, loop, you know. So I got into that, started doing James Ingram record, Donna Summer record, and then the Michael ja- big Michael Jackson record came. Okay, before the Michael Jackson, how come you didn't work on the follow-up Boz Gags record? Mm, mm, good question. Uh, it really came down to, to credits and, and, and value, uh, how much they valued me. I wanted to co-produce on the album. And uh, that wasn't flying with uh, him and Joe Wizard for some reason. Uh, they just didn't work out. And so... My dad said, I said, when should I form my band? He said, well, you should do this album if you can do it. But if they say no, uh, now's the time to probably form your band, you know, because uh, uh, 
you, you have a there was a lot of people uh, schmooziness at the time from big, big record companies because of the Boss Skaggs thing. And we've been as we went on the road, we kept telling people we're going to be forming a band. And everybody, we got cards from everybody this before cell phones and everything. Everybody had cards of people that we contacted or would play our demos for to get a record deal. So uh, uh, it was, uh, uh, that's because I I wanted to co-produce and basically I couldn't. And did he ever come back to the table because he never had as much success as he had with you? Yes, and I did. uh, I co-produced an album called Dig with him that came out, and uh, I co-produced that with him and a couple other songs uh, off, uh, we did remade uh, Lowdown and uh, uh, Lido Shuffle to do uh, so he could own, uh, he wanted to own the masters on it. So we remade them. So tell me about working with Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson was a perfectionist. I would love him. He was the sweetheart to work with. He told, gave you total 100% autonomy whenever you were doing something to if you heard doing this or heard in a choir or wanted an orchestra or one of he just say, just think big, use your imagination. He would say, he would say, think, imagine you're Michelangelo and you're painting the Sistine Chapel. That's why I want you to produce, uh, arrange your, your part, you know, because he didn't treat you like you were just a musician. He treated you like you were a, a creative force in making part of his music. So, uh, I got in a room with him and we were just playing music. I was playing, I think it was Billy Jean, which I didn't end up playing on, but I played, uh, did a couple of overdubs on it. And he let, he let a couple of mistakes go by and I stopped him right there. And I said, Michael, you're, you're sloughing off. I said, I'm a perfectionist. And uh, he goes, well, so am I. He goes, can you mind, you don't mind if I say you're, you made a mistake there? I said, no, I, I want you to bust me on it. So I went back, cleaned up all my stuff. And from there on, him and I's relationship was great because he said he'd go in a room and go, yeah, D- David's got to be in the room with me when I do vocals. He's a perfectionist like I am. He'd say this to people. And Quincy Jones would be in the room and it'd, be, it'd get embarrassing after a while, you know? So why was it a phenomenon? Was it Michael? Was it Q? Who do we give the credit to? I think you can start with them. I think you can start with Quincy Jones. Uh, put laying the groundwork again, giving him a cast of characters to choose from uh, to play on all these albums. I mean, all the best, best players were sitting out in the hallway, ready to go in. It was like relief pitchers for the Dodgers or something. You know what I mean? Bad example. Um, uh, there was Foster. There was me. There was Phil and Gaines. There was Michael Boddicker. There was Steve Ricardo. All sitting in the hallway to go each go in for whatever duties. You need to do either tuning a synth or getting figuring out the tempos or uh, 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 one of a million things that you could possibly be doing. So back to your what you were saying, I think Quincy had framed the whole package and let Michael just be a great artist, which he is a credible artist. And Quincy uh, is a song man and made sure that all the songs were up to par and... Uh, uh, he even called McCartney in, uh, uh, or I think McCartney may have approached him, but Quincy may have approached McCartney. I'm not sure. I got to check that out about the girl is mine because they wanted to get a duet on the album. 
And who other than Paul McCartney, you know, perfect call, perfect casting right there. So uh, uh, that was, uh, I think, Quincy and Michael, and not to mention all the great musicians that played on the record, too, you know. And a guy uh, who I love dearly, who's not with us anymore, named Rod Temperton, who wrote most of those songs on the Thriller album. He was he made great demos and was a great songwriter. And do you think Michael changed with the success? Uh, I think that success changes, alters everybody a little bit. Not maybe everybody, but most people are affected by it somehow. And I think that when that album became so big, I don't think Michael was insulated enough to keep all the other people away from him, the people that weren't interested in him for his talent. And uh, uh, he started making bigger deals with outside people and and just becoming a a larger-than-life figure. So I think that... uh, I think I can't actually put my finger on it, but I think success may have uh, uh, put him in a certain perspective, uh, let him view everything with a certain lens and uh, that maybe the normal person wouldn't uh, view the world, you know? Okay. So you're out with uh, Boz. How does the, how do you meet Luca third to begin with? Good question. I met him uh, at a high school. We were playing, they were playing a gig. The, the, the follow-up band, you have to understand, our band was called Still Life in high school. Well, when we all left, when Mike Percaro and, Je- and Jeff and I left, Steve Percaro and Steve Lukather took over our band, which was called Still Life. So they, they became Still Life. And, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, so uh, words start getting around when we started looking for our, a band to put together uh, that there was this guy, Steve Lukather, and you guys ought to really check him out. Actually, there was two guitar players, Steve Lukather and Mike Landau. They were both in the same band. And But me and Jeff went down to Taft High School, which is right down the street here, and I saw somebody running around on stage, and it looked like some derelict or something like this some older guy and as i got closer to the stage i realized that the guitar player it was a guitar player and he had a monkey mask on on stage wearing it and the when i got up closer to the stage you could see him he he ran and jumped through the air like pete townsend and slid on his knees and got up and sang johnny be good with uh his uh impression of a johnny winner kind of voice on johnny be good and jeff says Jeff goes, there's our front man right there. Jeff pointed to him and says, there's our front man, you know. I was just listening to the guitar playing, and he was just playing faster than shit. And Landau was playing a Stratocaster, which I was a big Strat fan. So I, I was kind of leaning toward Landau because uh, of a Stratocaster playing. But Jeff saw it, said, that's what we need. We, he's a star. Jeff recognized that Luca there was a star from the beginning there. So that's how we met. And I started going to some of their gigs, sitting in on some of their gigs uh, when they would go play uh, Beverly Hills uh, High School and they'd have their, their gig at the Beverly Hills Hotel. I showed up, uh, did a cameo performance and played with them a couple of times. So uh, I think even Jeff, Jeff got Steely, uh, Donald and Walter to come down to one of their gigs because they were so fabulous and, and hear the band. 
And how did Lukather get into Sessions? Lukather started, Lukather got into our band, and that's how he got Sessions. Once, once Jeff Percaro put his arm around you, that was the guy to be, you know what I mean? Because everybody, a lot of other people, we go, that she'll uh, go nameless. A lot of people wanted the guitar spot on, on the Toto thing, but Lukather showed up. He just showed up when we were making our demos and we didn't put the word out or call or anything. He just showed up, showed up, sat in the hall and learned the tunes out of the hallway and came in and just roasted the four songs like a guy that's been playing them for 20 years. It was unbelievable. You know, it was phenomenal. We just, Jeff and I were just looking at each other. We were shaking our heads. We couldn't believe it, you know, because these were just songs that were just freshly written that, uh, you know, and so he put the original guitar parts on. So Jeff started taking him around. When Jeff would do a session, he goes, you got to meet, you got to use Steve Luca there on guitar. You got, and introduce him to Larry Carlton. So guitar players started recommending him when they couldn't make gigs, you know. Word, word got around very fast about Luke. He was a quick learner. And how did Bobby Kimball get in the band? Bobby Kimball was in a band I was going to co-produce called SS Fools, which is the old Three Dog Night rhythm section. And they had a band, and Jeff and I had been rehearsing with that band, with those guys, uh, before uh, to to make a band called SS Fools. But me and Jeff didn't want to join the band. We just wanted to make the record. So we were playing with this guy, Joe Shermie, and a couple other ex-guys from uh, Three Dog Night. And Bobby Kimball was one of the singers. And uh, he would, I all I noticed when he would sit and play a song by himself, it would practically shatter windows and he could sing really high, really high and really powerful and really bluesy because he was from New Orleans. And uh, so it was very powerful and very, very funky. And uh, uh, we tried to contact other singers. I asked Mike McDonald to be in the band. I asked Kenny Loggins to be in the band. I asked Mickey Thomas, Thomas to be in the band. And they were all wanted us to join their bands. Uh, so it was a st- kind of a stalemate. It was a push. And... Uh, at the last minute, because I had done the vocals on the demos, which were barely acceptable, but they were okay for people to listen to, I finally, they kept saying, how's your vocals going to be? People kept questioning, well, what's to- we know Toto can play, but who does their vocals? Who's their singer, and how are their vocals going to be? Now, you have to understand, this was a time when Boston had just come out and owned the charts, and Foreigner was out. So backgrounds were heavy, and they had to be high, and powerful. So I just took a chance and we, uh, I brought Bobby Kimball in and to audition with us. And the first thing we did was hold the line. We, we rehearsed that. Uh, and the, the first time we played it, it sounded almost 99% just like the record with him singing, Luca there on guitar, me and Jeff on our instruments, and Hungate on drums. And that's what sold us on him. Okay. So hold the line came before the record deal or vice versa? Hold the Line came before the record deal. Yes. And how did you get the record deal and how'd you end up on Columbia? Uh, we were, Jeff, Jeff always kept a, a cassette. We always kept cassettes of our demos in our pockets. And because we visited every session in town, we would also meet all the record executives from every company. So every time there'd be a break on the session, Jeff would pop in our cassette and let the executives listen to it from that company. So every company knew about us. Warner Brothers, uh, CBS, 
you name it. They all knew about us. And uh, uh, we were, Warner Brothers was bidding against CBS because uh, CBS uh, wanted to sign us, but Warner's wasn't bid, wasn't, uh, was bidding against Warner, uh, CBS. So we got a call from Walter Yetnikoff, who was president of CBS at the time at Jeff's house. And he said he wanted us to go. He would. He wanted us to be on CBS. So he wanted to stop this uh, bidding war, bidding war nonsense. And uh, uh, he wanted uh, uh, two managers called Fitzgerald and Hartley. Uh, Mark Hartley and Larry Fitzgerald managed us because they were managing Chicago. And I know Larry had been tour manager for McCartney on his tour. So I know they had touring and they knew how to work the record company. The reason you mainly hire managers is at that time was because they knew how to manipulate the record companies. So we knew that they had were in good standing with Sony. And Yetnikoff had requested that we do it that way. So we followed Walter Yetnikoff's uh, lead in there and went with Sony uh, instead of a smaller labels and stuff like that. And uh, uh, it was they signed us without even seeing us perform live. I think the guy that signed us got fired because of that. But they were there was so much confidence in uh, Toto at that time, unseen that just the word of mouth uh, got assigned. Now, in the first album, you wrote almost all the songs. Yeah. Uh, I think that's probably because I started writing songs before everyone. No, everyone else was kind of, they were mainly musicians, not songwriters, where I had been writing songs for the last, uh, I don't know, 10 years between, uh, let's see, or maybe five years, five years before the band. So I had this backlog of, pieces of songs not unlike my my solo record here which had pieces of songs but i started putting the pieces together and made these song made this uh, most of the songs that you heard on the very first album it's just that i had a head start and i had a backlog of songs uh to per, to play plus i wrote i wrote while we were doing the record too so uh uh maybe i just was a little bit of because i'm a little bit older than lukather and uh and Steve Bercaro and the guys. So I had a little bit of a head start. Those were like un- undergrads. Okay, did you know Hold the Line was going to be a hit? No, but I was hoping it would be a hit. But I didn't know. All I knew was it was catchy. It was very catchy. And uh, I loved uh, Hot Fun in the Summertime by Sly Stone. So I, I wanted to write something that made me feel like that. And so I uh, I started playing this riff uh when I got out of, uh, when I moved out of my parents' house and I got an apartment in Westwood and I got an upright piano and I started playing this riff and I didn't stop playing the riff for about three days. I started keep playing the song, working on the song and my, the neighbor, next door neighbor started pounding on the wall for me to stop. It got so monotonous. So we, we, we rehearsed it. That's when we went to the studio and rehearsed with Bobby Kimball and found out that, yeah, we have a band here, which meant, all these little pieces of songs, whatever I have possibly going, we have a band, we have an outlet for it. Well, there's a vehicle for it now uh, that, that we prove to ourselves withhold the line. So we start rehearsing the other songs to go in and cut the first album. So it's a success, you know, back in there, there, I mean, the record was everywhere. What changed? I mean, then you have to go on the road. You have to go to yeah. photo shoots. What was it like? 
it was it was we had a lot of smiles on our face you know the album went double platinum and uh we were supposed to we got an agent uh uh the booking agent and what we kept telling people we wanted to headline the first time out because we'd heard of other bands doing that successfully if they had a great live show so we kept telling our our uh uh they kept wanting us to open for people and we didn't want to do that so they booked us and we started working small gigs uh around as as the uh, headliners of course they were just small venues at the time uh but we started going on the road and as our records started taking off uh we got an offer from japan to play big big places because our, our record became a huge hit in japan right after that and we went over to japan and it was like total mania there it was like the beat it was not unlike not quite the beatles but it was a lot of fan uh um fanboys and fangirls over there that uh, just uh, followed Toto from from gig to gig on the trains and uh, uh, sold out concerts and uh, was really great for our egos and for our, to validate our band. And uh, uh, little by little, our records start, records helped enormously at that time. You gain uh, recognition if you had a hit record. There was a guy named Big, uh, uh, Big Al, in uh, Amsterdam that broke hold the line there, which is why we ended up being so huge in Europe is everybody heard the station in Amsterdam. And uh, uh, we just played, totally just played the Zigadome in Amsterdam and it sold out to 17,000 people. So it shows you how our success story started with just a radio play at that time and knowing the DJ, you know, back in that day, that's when by knowing if you knew a DJ or had a relationship with our managers, had a had a, uh, a relationship with a guy named Steve West at KJR in Seattle, and he broke hold of the line in the United States, and all the other register all the other stations went on it because I think they're called P ones or something like that, right? Radio right. stations, and uh, that means so, it's popular market, right? Yeah, so that's how. Uh, uh, that's what we were doing was playing live and uh, and getting ready for uh, to make another record, but mainly uh, touring live and uh, enjoying uh, being uh, rock stars, you know. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over six million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. You are very experienced guys. Most people who have success like that out of the box end up being ripped off. They're so busy working, they don't know what the hell was going on. What happened with you guys? Uh, we're pretty lucky when it comes to that stuff. But you had a lot of people watching us. My father and my mom, who was a, my mom was a corporate bookkeeper. She was always looking at my checks and because I, I had already had a career doing sessions. So, uh, and I, I had a publishing, I was already published and was had my own publishing and so uh uh but they were it was more transparent with the uh my parents had a relate uh would able to talk to the managers and ask around to see who's honest and who's not as honest and we found out that our ma- managers were were more honest than all the others out there i say more honest you know cuz they're the we put the name manager in front of anybody and they can't be that honest you know uh but uh, anyway, uh, we had people looking at the books all the time, you know. Uh, we had an accountant. The band had an accountant. Uh, the managers had an accountant. And I had my own accountant. So there were three people watching, uh, keeping an eye on everything at the time and making sure we didn't move too fast, too quickly, you know. So tell me about making the second record. The second record we had been playing live to bigger venues and we'd seen that there's bands out there doing stuff that was working specifically for live audiences. Bands like Queen, bands like Jethro Tull, uh, bands like uh, Gentle Giant, bands like Genesis were making a noise out there, but they were doing not necessarily hit singles. They were doing great concert music. So, we start writing a few things like uh, the word the the next album was called Hydra, which I got from a Leonard Cohen poem called Hydra, uh, and uh, we we kind of start experimenting with that as an opener, a show opener, which it did open our show uh, live for uh, a tour, and it ended up being great. We ended up getting a lot of fulfillment and and crowd pleaser from doing more extended work on that album. And again, I had a couple songs lying around that I had written. Again, in the meantime, after the first album and the second album, we're still doing sessions all the time. Jeff and Luke are are over with Elton John in France, cutting an Elton John record. 
I'm in the studio doing some keyboard overdubs with Steve Ricaro. And so uh, we're working, and I was constantly writing songs, trying to write new material for the uh, second album. And that's what we ended up with was uh, uh, a couple of, uh, uh, there was a Steve Ricaro song, and I think I wrote most of the, the, the rest of the songs, although I'd have to look at it again. Okay, this is how I really got into that album. I was on a plane, and they played 99 in the old days when you used to listen to the programming. Oh, yeah. Tell me about 99 and why that's the uh, name of the song and how that come to you. 99, I just seen a George Lucas movie called THX. I think it is 1183, something like that. Anyway, the premise was everyone in the future, it was about every futuristic a dystopian society where everybody had numbers and not names. So I thought it was really, would be clever to write a song about a girl or a, a mate, as it may be, that had a number and not a name. And I just picked up 99. It just came out of my mouth. I was just singing, uh, playing the groove to 99. And I went, 99, I've been waiting so long. And that's how it happened. And I just finished the song. And, uh, like I said, it probably doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people, but I thought it was one of Toto's better tracks that we cut, and I thought it has a extended guitar, so has extended guitar and bass solos on the end, which were pretty innovative for that time, and they play it all till the very end. It just shows you what a great rhythm section uh, uh, Toto was is on that record is very indicative. David Hungate, Jeff Percaro on drums, Steve Lukather uh, on uh, guitar, and Bobby Kimball didn't sing on that at all. Right, and so the album holds together, but in '99 had some chart impact, but not as much as Hold the Line. What did you guys think, and what did the label think? We thought that we had, uh, we were hoping for bigger numbers with '99, but we we saw that it was kind of a minor hit, kind of adult contemporary kind of thing. So. Uh, you know, we were, I think we were so busy trying to get our touring show together that we weren't so interested in singles. We thought we thought maybe All Us Boys or uh, I forget what else is on there, Mama or something like this. I don't know. I think the record company also, once, once the album didn't take off, they started losing interest a little bit. And I think maybe, though, one of the, the record presidents uh, may have, they may have changed presidents at that time from Bruce Lundball to another guy. But I remember uh, uh, that has a devastating effect on bands when you the person that signs you gets replaced by another person because they bring in a whole other team. So I think it was maybe the lack of uh, 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 the fact that the, there was no hold the line uh, on uh, or Georgie Porgy, for that matter, on uh, on the second album. And uh, it kind of, uh, we went by the wayside, I think, for a little bit. And then the third album comes out and is less commercially successful. Yes. What, what are you guys thinking? We're thinking more live show. Again, this is more, we'd seen Queen in concert. Uh, we'd heard Queen records. And we even hired Queen's engineer, Jeff Workman, to engineer the record. Uh because he used to uh, record for Roy Thomas Baker, R RTB. And uh, uh, so we thought if we sounded like Queen, we'd be, we'd, we'd be Queen, you know, kind of our Queen thing. But we still did our own Toto stuff. 
And we thought we had, it was a good, it was just a change, a 180 degree change from Toto into the big leagues of rock and roll. We thought our sound would be bigger and more like Zeppelin y, more queenish on record. And it was be driving, driven harder and sound like a, a big, big rock show, you know? And we were playing music more geared for live playing, I think, than it was for making singles. Although we thought there was a few singles on there. But uh, again, the record company had changed presidents at that time, right be, right when that album came out. And uh, it, it had a deaf ear turn, turn to it, I think. Okay. So what are your thoughts, the band's thoughts, going into Toto 4, which in retrospect is huge, but you don't know that going in? Yeah. We know that we have one more record. The record company lets us know we have one more record to do good, or that's going to be it. They thought it was one, they wanted to, sh- to prove that we weren't a one-hit wonder, which, by the way, we had more than one hit on the on the first album. But uh, the, we had to prove that we still could make hit singles uh, for the record label. You know, they were getting tired of these album cuts on Hydra and Turnback. So uh, uh, I I decided I I wanted to make an album that was so powerful that was the absolute best we could possibly do, and. Uh, the, so the first song, I started constructing a song that I thought would be my idea of uh, throw everything that I know into one single to make a hit record. And if that didn't work out, I'd, I'd hang up, I'd hang it up. And uh, I wrote Rosanna uh, right then and there, kind of constructed it from all my all my favorite little uh, devices and riffs and and part of my soul, so part of my heartfelt uh, lyrics and. Uh, uh, Voila, uh, we did, we, I got Al Schmidt to engineer it. We called him in, uh, who's the greatest engineer in the world at that time and st- still has the most Grammys of anybody. Girl, Al Schmidt, everybody knows him. And he cut all of our tracks at Sunset Sound. And from the big beginning of Rosanna, uh, we knew that uh, we had something there. We invited the president down who heard the Rosanna and the rough, mix, rough mixes and they loved it and told us to keep working on the record because we were spending a lot of money uh, in studio time doing all the overdubs. At one time, we had all three studios at Sunset Sound working on our record right there. So we knew we knew Total Four was going to be something special, and we treated it as such. We hired, you know, hired ba- Tim Schmidt came in, sang backgrounds. Joe Percaro played some percussion. We hired James Pankow to play a trombone on the Rosanna. I got we hired a lot of great professionals to work on that album, as well as uh, I think this milestone in the album was when I went to the UCLSO in London. McCartney had just come out with "Live and Let Die," and I was so impressed with the orchestra in "Live and Let Die" that I wanted to write something that showed off the orchestra, which we ended up right doing. Uh, Lukather and myself uh, started work, work did "Afraid of Love." which features the LSO on it. And I think that had an impact and powerful, was was really powerful, uh, that addition to our sound. And uh, I just think uh, there was a lot of more co-writing on that album as well. So I think that our, our whole uh, standard, or the bar was raised on that album. Okay. A lot of great tracks on that album. Make Believe. Who says the Crimson Moon doesn't shine? Do you remember how you wrote that? Yes, I do. Don't ask me what it means, but uh, 
that's just one of my lyrics. You know what I mean? You know, okay. I, was, I was, I was, I was in love at the time. I think, you know, the album is gigantic, sells 12 million copies, wins all these Grammys. What was it like being on the inside? Uh, what of the Grammys or, or being on the inside of the time period? Being the inside of the success, Grammys are secondary. It was great because it just validated a lot of stuff that we already thought that we were. We already knew that we were pretty good uh, because we had confidence from doing sessions and from our first album. So we already knew that kind of well, this helped validate uh, our band and gave us confidence. We that's mainly we gained a whole lot of confidence. And, uh, uh, you know, we had our 15 seconds of, uh, uh, fame there and everybody was interviewing us. Everybody wanted to know Toto and, uh, we just kind of took it in stride, but we've been around success and stars before. So we didn't let it go to our heads because we had all the other producers and all the other, our peers and colleagues were there to keep us in line, you know? So the next album how does Bobby Kimball leave and Fergie Fredrickson come in? Okay. Um, I'm not going to ponder this, uh, stay, dwell on this uh, subject too long, but Bobby ended up being one of those persons that couldn't handle success as well as the rest of us could. And uh, uh, it, it got out of hand uh, to where uh, we were trying to record and he was uh, stopped showing up for vocals. So, uh, Jeff just put his foot down and said, we've got to get someone here immediately because we had an, we had half of an album written that we had recorded with him. Uh, it was isolation. And Jeff said, heard this singer, Fergie Fredrickson, from this Louisiana band. And at that moment, it seemed just like a beam of light, a, 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 a guy who could sing up high, a guy who looked good, who could uh, uh, perform good on stage. And we just, we thought Toto thought our rhythm section. We really thought we had the magic, the Midas touch with singers because we'd work with Leo Sayer, Boss Skaggs, just about every singer out there. And we had been made hit records with people, so we thought it's just another singer. We'll bring this singer in and we'll mold him into being that that front man that uh, you need so badly for your identity. Now, in retrospect, I wish I'd gone a di- different direction, and we and we'd uh, still. Uh, you know, made uh, uh, some course corrections back there and kept Bobby in the band. But uh, it just didn't work out that way. Well, needless to say, you have this gigantic album and it's not commercially successful. How disheartening was that? It was very disheartening. First of all, the they shipped a whole lot of records and a lot of records were, were rack jobbers got stuck with the records and they weren't happy about that. So we got a bad rap on the fact that the album was overhyped and this wasn't the same singer and uh, it just kind of uh, uh, boomeranged on us a little bit there. Now, if you talk to Steve, he will talk about the backlash, people talking shit about Toto. Yeah. Did you feel the same way? Um, I got a little thicker skin than Steve does, but yeah, you know, when every time anybody starts picking apart lyrics, or picking apart songs, I you know I I have feelings the same as the other guy, but I I've learned to re- let him roll off my back a little bit more. But but there's certain times when we were a band where we all jointly were reading bad press uh, for us, 
and getting uh, uh, pissed off about it, you know, because we'd do something we thought would be great in uh, Rolling Stone magazine. We were doing great work with other artists, and every time they'd find a total member in, in on the album, they would say something bad about the, uh, the, the total member, you know what I mean? So everywhere we were getting bad press, you know. So how do you kick Freddie Frederick, Fergie Fredrickson out of the band? You're going deep on me. Uh, again, when you have personnel that you go through, how can I say this? There's like a, like a team that puts in a, a, a player and they don't work out and you have to bring in a new player. We were having to, we were treating the lead singer position just like it was a, a variable, a, cons, a spot that we could fill with somebody else and we could replace that person. Uh, Fergie just it wasn't a fit. That's all I can tell you. It just, it just wasn't quite a fit. And people's reaction to him wasn't that good. And our record sales, um, record company, again, we had a tell the president that wasn't running, wasn't in our pocket as far as the records go. And so uh, 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 we weren't getting much help from the label because of a single not popping off there which we thought they chose the wrong single. But uh, uh, so that helped. Uh, we just started looking around, and Steve Lukather started singing more and more. And uh, uh, we had started having background singers sing some lead vocals and stuff to replace our uh, lead vocalist. And uh, he just uh, kind of evolved out of the band. And why did Hungate leave? Hungate just didn't like going on the road. Hungate was a home a uh, homebody, and he didn't want, like touring that much. He'd been touring with Sonny and Cher ever since uh, he was in college. And uh, when Toto kept wanting to tour, uh, Toto originally was going to make records, tour a little bit, but still do sessions all the time. You know, it was kind of like our our side gig, Toto was going to be, until it became our full-time job, you know. And uh, uh, he just wanted to stay home. Okay, how does Joseph Williams get in the band? Joseph, good question. Joseph knew Lukather back when they were 14 years old, uh, from high school, I think. And uh, Jeff was aware of his talent, and I was aware, and I became aware of Joseph on Twilight Zone, the movie that Spielberg produced. Uh, which Joe, Joe, they had called in Joe to do a demo vocal for the song that he wrote for the opening sequence in Twilight Zone, the movie. So I went down to where they were recording it because uh, I played on the track and they said, well, who should we get to sing? And Joseph was standing there and uh, he sounded amazing on the vocal. I said, well, you have your singer. He's right here. Get him to sing. So I had heard him sing. But then when we were looking for another sing, we were looking for... This is just after isolation. We're looking for another singer. And we tried out some singers, but then we jammed with Joseph in a, in a rehearsal hall. And Joseph was so fast and had such good pitch and was so hip that it was just undeniable that he should be the sing- our singer because he was, uh, he just, he clicked. It was a fit. That album is my favorite Toto album. Certainly had a hit with I'll Be Over You. Yeah. Did you feel like the engine uh, was running on high test again? What was it like being on the inside? Absolutely. Absolutely. When Lukather had I'll Be Over You, 
uh, and Steve is his songs are like my favorite songs. They're I think they're the best written, the most well written songs in our catalog. Which is won't hold you back, and I'll be over you. That comes from me, who's you have yet as yet to write a love ballad. Okay. Well, the funny thing is, those are such sensitive songs, and he really is a sensitive guy, but he presents so differently. I know he certainly does. That's a, he's a real paradox, you know. And uh, uh, Luca, there, well, I'll be over you. We brought in Mike McDonald to sing backgrounds on "I'll Be Over You," and again, we had an album budget to do videos. That's when videos are really big. We did a video for that, and uh, uh, again, I thought I thought that uh, it's not the same without your love was going to be a smash hit, and it didn't be wasn't a hit, you know. Same way Africa. No one thought Africa was going to be a hit, but it became a hit. So odd things happen. Sometimes magic uh, just happens out of nowhere. You know what I mean? But back to the I'll Be Over You, uh, Steve started coming along uh, singing more, and uh, that uh, was a really good sign of our being able to say, well, we still got the core guys. We still have David Page, who sang on Africa, and we have Steve Luca there that sang on I Won't Hold You Back. Okay, you kick Williams out of the band. How does that happen? Uh, I'm going to move along fast through this. Just some of our road habits. Just uh, People weren't taking care of themselves. I wasn't taking care of myself. Joe wasn't. Uh, the road's very hard. And uh, it's hard enough when you have to go out and wine and dine uh, promoters and uh, and. Uh, different managers after each show and there's a lot of drinking going on a lot of uh, this going on um joe uh uh it just didn't become a fit uh after that and we had to make a change and i'm just gonna make a left turn right here and move on put that in a rearview mirror okay but he does sing on the seventh one which you have yes. a hit again so what's the vibe in the band then vibes very good very positive joe's doing great uh, uh, he sang on that whole record and, uh, um, the vibe on the seventh one, Joe and I had co co-wrote a song called Pamela, which became a, believe it or not, a very big record. It was, it was destined to be number top 10 and it was headed, it was in the top 30 with a bullet. And again, CBS closed their doors, Sony, and fired the president at the time. And they dropped the Springsteen record, which was number 15 with a bullet. That fell off the charts. And our record, which was top 30, which is called Pamela. We had every station in the country except a, a big station in New York that we needed. And it would have been top 10. Uh, but anyway, the, the back to Joseph. Uh, him and I wrote uh, Pamela together. And that kind of uh, uh, blew some wind back into our sails. Okay, then it ends with Sony. Why does it end with Sony? I think just their uh, lack of interest, lack of participation with us. You know, it's hard to it's hard to say what exactly. Put your finger on it. You know, I think if you're not the flavor of the month, and your and the team that signs you isn't there, I think that you don't have the same kind of support that you do when you have like. You know, look at Mo Austin, how long he was at Warner Brothers. Look at Herb Alpert with A&M, how long these guys, and they would sign these acts and they nurture them and they believe in them, you know, where other companies, uh, uh, they change presidents and they change uh, 
support teams. So uh, uh, it's hard to say uh, what exactly why we got. We kept being on Legacy, which is a subsidiary of Sony, because we were making smaller out. We were making we had lesser of a budget, and we were uh, 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 starting to record in our home studios a little bit more. You know. So how do you feel? Do you, you're not going to have another hit single? Do you realize that? What's you know? What's the vibe? Well, this is what I do. I'm going to continue to do it. Yeah, yeah. That's the that's the vibe. We're not going to rely on our singles. Uh, we always feel we have the, the, uh, the plenty of singles left, but we're not intentionally writing like that big hit single. Uh, we were trying to be more of a rock band at that time and be a live uh, a big live. Uh, uh, event band, you know? So after the hits, after the Columbia days, are you, are you basically in Toto and that's your career or do you go back to doing sessions or? I don't think the sessions have ever really stopped, but yes, everybody went back to sessions what there were of them. I think that that uh, around that time, um, after we did Kingdom of Desire, because that was with Jeff and, and Bob Claremountain, we eventually got to, did uh, uh, through the Looking Glass through the through the Looking Mirror. Anyway, uh, it was a Toto album where we did all cover songs, where we weren't on any label at all. We just did it ourselves and did it uh, 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 at Simon Phillips' house, recorded the whole thing, and uh, it was amazing and. Uh, that's we kind of just uh, chummed around and uh, uh, did record dates and kept working on our our albums. Meanwhile, I think Luke was working on solo records. In between that, I think I have my chronology right. Probably not. Luke either has a steel trap memory, and he can re- recall any date, any concert, any day. It's amazing. I'm the exact opposite. Uh, so uh, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, and how does Bobby Kimball get back in the band? <laughs> Well, he kind of uh, got his act together and uh, everybody had heard that he was doing well and it cleaned up and everybody was dying to get here Kimball sing back with the band. So we were like, well, if he's together, if he's in shape and physically and healthy, mentally mentally in, in, into it, we thought we'd give it another shot. And how did it end with him again and then Joseph Williams come back again? <laughs> Boy. <laughs> Boy. This is, uh, you're going to be a broken record on that, huh? Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, let's see. Bobby, uh, again, uh, I'm I'm not really sure. It just was kind of falling out, I think, personality-wise. And it, it was never really a fit with Bobby in the first place. I mean, because we all used to hang out in high school. Bobby was older than we were, okay? So we weren't... He kind of kept to himself, and we kind of all chummed around together from high school days. So uh, I think it was just uh, chumming around and getting going. You know, we're this isn't he's not working out live because it'll start falling back into some of the old uh, problems and habits, uh, which uh, prevent you from going on the road uh, and performing every night. You know what I mean? And taking care of your voice and doing all this stuff. And that's when we realized that we needed a a, a singer that knew us, but uh, could could uh, go on the road because uh, the physical aspects of going on the road are are terribly uh, hard, you know, to travel on bus. 
Plane's easier. Okay. The music business, meanwhile, starts to change. Rock starts to fade, hip-hop comes in, then Napster comes in, and today everything's blown apart. So where do you see yourself in the landscape, or do you just feel I'm separate from the landscape and I do what I do? A little bit of both. I feel ingrained in the landscape, musical landscape. I feel part of it for the last 40 years. And uh, uh, I try and roll with the punches, you know. Music is funny. Everybody in the band has their own opinion about the direction music takes, you know. I, I, I opened my arms to rap, rap music when it came around. Not a, the original stuff, but when they started covering some of my songs and, and, and cutting and pasting them and mashing them up, I was like more way into it, you know, just like I always took the Quincy Jones attitude, which is the more the merrier and, and music has to move on, you know? So, uh, uh, basically we were half rock and roll and half of it, half of us wanted to move on a little bit with hip hop. But again, back in the, the, the talk about hip hop, waiting for your love was the song on the total four record. That was a, like one of the first hip hop songs, as far as I'm concerned, and the band was concerned too. So, uh, we all we we understood it why people were digging it and and uh, the, one of the 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 uh, classic songs that came out and showed showed us all what we should be doing with rap was Aerosmith who did Walk This Way uh, with the Run DMC there there was the there was the guiding light right there that's how rock and rollers should treat rap music and rappers you know so in any event uh, I've tried to uh, you know I've, a lot of people have covered. Uh, uh, Georgie Porgy and uh, Africa and stuff. So I've opened my my heart to uh, uh, wrap my arms around uh, uh, people mashing up uh, records of mine. And eventually, Lukather uh, got into it too when they started doing his uh, making disco mixes of his songs. So uh, little by little, uh, you start the the old horses started learning new tricks. And did people reach out and license, or did you have to find out people who ripped off your records? Uh, there would people that would, you would think I would have never called it ripping off people without permission, without sync permission had performed our records, but all we would do is call them and let them know that you guys were, have owe us money for our record. And they were gladly, they were like, here, take half the song, take all the song. We're, we're, we have no problem with that. We would, we would make people aware that they were, uh, in potential breach and, uh, uh, they would gladly uh, split anything he want uh, and make a deal. So we grew up in the era where the Beatles broke. Everybody picked up an instrument. They played in bands. There was a band everywhere, and there were ups and downs. There were some uh, disco, DJ, whatever. But that scene has really been undercut. You know, the old scene of, well, I'm going to play in my bands. I'm going to work the way. There are some people who do it, but most stuff is cut at home and most stuff is electronic. How do yeah. you feel about today's music, do you think, and the fact that rock is not primary? Uh, I have mixed feelings about it. I I I'm I like a lot some of the stuff that's being done today. I understand it. Maybe it's because I understand the process of how it's done on Pro Tools and with logic and uh, and how they humanize it. Uh, uh, funny, someone said something to me the other day and it just hit home. 
we grew up in a band of when bands were popular and now singers are popular singers because singers are everything they make they make everything humanized you hear all these incredible girl vocalists and some incredible guys out there too but you put a kick-ass singer on a on a sterile dance track and it's going to sound incredible you know so uh and some people make uh, musical strides and uh uh, Kendrick Lamar, I guess, is doing some some good out there, and uh, he seems to be uh, ahead of the the game. And uh, um, I I like I like the process of using the modern technology with the way I make records personally. Uh, being a chance that I don't have I don't have the luxury of being able to have these people that live in different cities at my beck and call to get in a room and play. Uh, I try and make do with what I have, and these tools allow you to do that. I love mashups. I love the the new genres, the ma- mashing up genres, and all the kind of experimentation. I think because uh, I I just grew up in the in the Beatles era of Sgt. Pepper, where they tried everything imaginable on tape and and uh, all kinds of things between sound effects, playing shit backwards, and doing everything. They they opened the floodgates as far as I was concerned. And do you keep up on modern music or are you just kind of aware? I'm kind of aware. I don't keep up as much as I should. I have I have a daughter, a 33-year-old daughter that keeps me in the know uh, real cool. You know what I mean? And uh, But as far as me knowing, I listen to the radio a lot when I'm driving, Sirius Radio, a lot of it's Beatle channel, but I'll occasionally listen to some other channels. And uh, again, I like people out there. I like uh, I like Adele. I like Pink. I like uh, Harry Styles is pretty good. I like Sam Smith, you know, but they're mostly sing- they're mostly singers, you know. And you know, once the business hit turmoil, certainly in 1999, 2000, Napster budgets went down, sessions dried up. Are there any sessions at- anymore? Anybody ever call you? Only to do overdubs. You know, I got called from Mike McDonald to do, to do some overdubs on his album. Don Felder called me. Uh, the only mo- sessions that are really being done now are movie sessions or for video games. My daughter's a video game producer, and she's doing sessions all the time, but they're with orchestras. And uh, uh, like I said, a, a few sessions are being done here and there, but not really live sessions that I know about, except in Nashville. I think they still do them in Nashville quite a bit uh that which is kind of becoming the new recording capital that la was as the recording capital you know right so what's next for you personally next rest i'm trying to improve my songwriting i'm trying to improve my lyric writing uh i've just wrote a song with shania twain who i've been a big fan of for a long time Uh, i might be getting ready to write with uh richard marks uh co-write something for his album with him and so I'm just trying to better myself as a piano player and as a songwriter and be the best version of myself that I can. And will we see another solo album from you? Possibly, possibly. Uh, I'd like to do one, but not in the near future. Okay, David, this has been fantastic. You know, from someone who was there, a real inside view, I want to thank you for taking the time. But Bob, I have so much more to tell you. Is that a joke or are you really? No, it's really. Okay, well, so just, just, just to preview, we're not going to go into it now, but if we did talk more, what would we talk about? Weston, 
Grab that picture off the wall. I'll just show you a little bit more about my past here. I've got a picture I want to show you. This is when I was in London in 1967, the summer of love. I was at Olympic Studios uh, where the, watching Procol Harum record their first album. But my dad was recording Sammy Davis Jr. And here's the proof of it right here. If you can see that. Can you see wow. that? Wow. Wow. It's me next to Sammy. Okay. I was 13. That was two, a year and a half before I met Jeff. Unbelievable. Okay? That's at Olympic Studios, just to show you. Uh, the, the the amazing stuff I saw in my life was was before Toto ever started, was with my dad, you know, and everything. Right now, another thing I'm doing that I'm really interested in is I'm archiving my father's arrangements with the Eastman School of Music, who has started a jazz program teaching Marty Page the style of writing that he did, uh, which is famous for West Coast writing. And so they're they're making they're making prints of it and they're making recordings of it and keeping the uh, jazz alive, which is our real our art form that we've contributed up in the United States to the world is jazz, is the art of jazz, keeping that alive, you know. So I'm involved in that too. Okay. And how'd you decide to wear the top hat? Ah, uh, top hat it's kind of rite of passage, you know. Leon had that with Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Although I do, my one of my biggest heroes is W.C. Fields, who always had a top hat on. I have to tell you that I did get it from Leon Russell, and then I know Elton John had one for a little bit there. But Leon Russell, the master of space and time, who I knew uh, uh, pretty well, and one, one of my major, major influences, the other one besides Elton, was Leon Russell. Um, and uh, I even did a song uh, on Through the Looking Glass, uh, It Takes a Lot to Cry, it takes, it takes a lot to laugh. It takes a train to cry. The Bob Dylan song, I dedicated to Leon Russell, you know, so uh, that's where I got the top hat. But anybody who wears a top hat knows they're relatively heavy and they're not that comfortable. Well, you know, that's true. I have light ones and they're, I have a big head, so uh, it swells occasionally. So I have to have different size black hats. There you have it. We could go on forever, David, but we gonna cut it off today promise me we'll do it again oh we definitely will because you know the stories that you tell are different from a lot of perspectives because you've seen both sides of the fence yeah. and in addition you had that peak from a very young age because of your yeah. father till next time this is bob left sex Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.